0: Welcome. This is the Way Home Podcast. A podcast
1: built around
0: conversations on church, community, and culture. And now, here's Dan Darling.
1: Well, welcome to the first episode of the Way Home Podcast. My name is Dan Darling, I'm Vice President of Communications of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Before I get into the conversations we're going to have today, I want to explain a little bit about this name, "The Way Home," and why we we chose it. The first reason is just simply to provide uh, compelling content, good conversations with leading evangelical authors and and scholars, and and writers, and pastors, and leaders for your drive home. Uh, I'm someone who has a about a 30 minute commute uh, back and forth to work, and I love to have good podcasts. I'm always looking for new ones. And I really enjoy... Conversations with interesting people, and that's something that I hope to provide. The second reason for the title "Way Home" is uh, comes from one of my favorite uh, verses in Scripture. It's Hebrews eleven ten, and it says, "Reading out of the ESV, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." And I feel like as as Christians who believe in the risen Christ, who look forward to the day that Christ returns, we're always looking forward and 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 looking forward to our future home in heaven. And so we're always, in a sense, we're on our way home. And so I hope this podcast has that hopeful outlook. But today we're going to have some really good conversations uh, with two of my favorite people. The first one is with Karen Swallow Pryor who is a professor at Liberty University teaching English and has, is also a very uh, popular writer and thinker. She writes for places like The Atlantic and Hermeneutics, which is a Christianity Today publication and many other places. And she has a book out called Fierce Convictions. And it's a biography of a woman named Hannah Moore, who you may not have ever heard of, but you should have. And uh, Hannah was very influential in England in the 1800s trying to end the British slave trade. And so we're going to have a very good conversation with her. She's very interesting. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to have a conversation with one of my favorite pastors, uh, Matt Chandler from the Village Church uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, Matt uh, has written several good books and is probably one of the most popular sermon podcasts uh, in iTunes. And we're going to talk about his latest book called The Mingling of Souls. It's a book on marriage. And he's got a very interesting story about marriage because uh, Matt, if you're not familiar with this story, several years ago was diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, his wife had to care for him uh, for about a year when he was very uh, helpless. And that really has formed his view of of marriage. and, And I feel like there's some. Good things he has to say, uh, particularly about marriage being a covenant and, and not a contract. Before we get into our conversations, I want to tell you about a really exciting conference we're hosting here at the ERLC in Nashville, March 26th and 27th. This is our second annual leadership summit. And the topic this year is uh, the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation, uh, and it's featuring Russell Moore, our president, but also John Perkins, who's a civil rights hero, uh, Tony Evans, the famous uh, pastor and, and, and teacher uh, from Dallas, Texas, he's heard all over on radio, and uh, just a very, very uh, well-liked pastor, and also D.A. Horton, uh, Danny Aiken, and several other Christian leaders, We feel this is a very, very important topic, racial reconciliation, uh, especially in light of uh, the events in Ferguson and in New York with the Eric Garner case. And so please make make plans to attend. It'll be be very compelling. You'll learn quite a bit if you come here. And I've been told that we have a special coupon code for listeners of this podcast. So if you go to the website, uh, go to my website, danieldarling.com. And go to the podcast page. There'll be show notes there. And if you link on the conference link and go to register for the conference, you type in way home when you register and you'll get a 15% discount. So I really encourage you to do that and join us in Nashville in March. Okay, now we're going to have our first interview with my friend, Karen Swallow-Prior. So I'm here with my friend, uh, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior, Pryor, is a professor of English at Liberty University and uh, is a well-known writer. She's written many, many um, articles and columns for places like The Atlantic and other places. Uh, She's won numerous academic awards, has written a a couple of books. Uh, One book is called Booked, Literature and the Soul of Me, which is a fantastic book. And then she's a contributing writer for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, uh, In Touch, Think Christian, many other places. Uh her latest book is The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, a uh, poet, reformer, abolitionist. So, welcome to the podcast, Karen. Glad to have you. Thank you
2: for it. Thank you for having me.
1: So, I read um the, the biography of Hannah Moore um on summer vacation and just thoroughly enjoyed it and was I just I just really loved it. Uh great biography just bringing to life someone that I don't think a lot of people knew about in terms of history. I want to talk about her, but before we do that, I really want to talk to you about, first of all, like how you, um, you know, developed a love for literature. Uh, is this something that you always had as a child and sort of wanted to pursue? How did, how did that happen?
2: Well, and of course, I tell this story more fully in my first book, which you mentioned, Books, Literature, and a Soul of Me. But basically, um, I grew up in uh, a home where my mother and my father read to me all the time. And, um, of course they read to my brothers too. And, you know, for whatever reason, it really stuck with me. So, um, from my earliest years, I remember just loving books and being encouraged to read, um, and even just being allowed to read whatever I wanted and whatever interested me, which, um, you know, some, some parents would probably, uh, not approach it that way, but mine did. And, um, and through that my my tastes and my desires for good literature developed.
1: Is this something that you always knew you would pursue kind of as a career, teaching career? How did that how did that sort of happen?
2: Yeah, actually it is not. I mean, I loved reading so much and and and, and any subjects related to reading and writing in school were so easy for me that I never realized it was something that one could pursue. Uh, seriously, I wrote poetry for fun as a child, as most children do, mm-hmm. um, but I had no intentions of pursuing an academic life um, in the discipline of English until I got to college and uh, discovered that my chosen major of social work was a very bad fit and that I wanted to just simply study the thing that I loved the most, and that was literature. So I did that, and I've never looked back.
1: You know, one of the things that you've really done well is kind of bringing to the evangelical consciousness and, and importance of literature and loving literature and how it kind of conform and shape us. Uh, do you feel like that's part of your mission and part of what you're doing?
2: I do feel like that's part of my call, a big part of it. And it's really kind of ironic because as I talk about in books, um, this liberal approach to reading that my parents allowed and that I pursued did not really match up with the kind of uh, sense that I got from the churches I grew up in about how to think about worldly and secular things. Mm-hmm. And so I felt a lot of tension growing up um, because of my love for literature and my my unabashed inclination toward, you know, worldly ideas and secular ideas and so forth. Um, and so the fact that I've been able to bring those two things together and integrate them seamlessly in my own life and provide a model of that for the church has just been so fulfilling and so enriching, but also kind of funny in an ironic way. I love how God's sense of humor um, just turns things around on us. And um, the resistance that I had, that I met in the church is actually something I see God now using me to change. And I think that's delightful.
1: It seems like there's a renewed interest in, in, in literature uh, among evangelicals, you know, in the last, I would say 10, 15 years. Are you finding that among, you know, students that are coming in that they're, they're hungry to learn or is there kind of a, has the sort of smartphone social media age hurt that, help that? What are you saying?
2: Well, my, my perspective is a little bit more limited these days because I teach only English majors and graduate mm-hmm. students. So I don't get to see the, the freshmen and sophomores as much, um, but I actually think the, the little bit that I do see, in some ways, the smartphones and the social media, um, as image-driven as they are, they're also heavy with words. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of reading going on, and we're actually developing some new courses in our uh, program at Liberty to help students um, navigate Blogs and articles mm-hmm. to read them critically, write them critically. So um, I'm actually kind of encouraged about how um, the social media generation is replacing the television generation, um, which really was just just about images. And social media brings words, I think, back into play.
1: It really is. I've, I've often said that myself. That um, we like we read. I think we read more now just because people are posting links. Interesting things. You're having your friends and your your tribe, so to speak, say, hey, this is good. I read this and passing it on. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I I've, even long form has been kind of uh, resurrected in some senses, you know, because there's, you know, the internet, there's no limit to, you know, in terms of space. Right. And so I think right. that seems to be a good development.
2: Right and it's a great time for Christians to just really grab hold of our identity as people of the word um and to capitalize on this so i, I and i think that we are as you as you mentioned i think that we we are um capitalizing on that and and owning that uh, the heritage of ours
1: So i want to talk about Hannah Moore so first i just want to say how how did you um start to have an interest in her i noticed that your your phd was on her uh, but was yeah. it before then that you kind of had a renewed interest in her her life?
2: No, this is like one of my greatest God stories in my life is that I was floundering doing my dissertation research on another writer, a more major figure in the 18th century novel, and just, you know, floundering away as most doctoral students do. And um, I just felt like I was getting nowhere, spinning my wheels, and I had a meeting with um, a committee member and had nothing to bring to the meeting. So I spent the, spent the day before in prayer and fasting, and um, lo and behold, we had a, a blizzard the next day, and my <laughs> meeting was canceled. Um, and that's the day that I continued my research, and I stumbled across the name of this woman, Hannah Moore, in this dusty old book. And it's the little bit that I read about her. I just said, that's who I want to write my dissertation about. And I was off and running, and and, and that's who, that's what happened.
1: I think the the fascinating thing about her is that, you know, f- figures like William Wilberforce and and others in in that time period, you know, get a lot of attention deservedly. So for the great heroic work they did to end the slave trade, well we didn't really hear much about her. Why is that?
2: That's, you know, that it's such a great question and I, and I'm not even sure I have a full and satisfactory answer, but I think there are a few things that we can point to. First of all, the roles that Wilberforce and Newton had were uh, political, um, and then Hannah Moore was a public figure, um, but not a political one. And I think you know we are in an age that's very enamored with pol- politics, and it's easier to look at a piece of legislation that changes things and 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 pinpoint that. Uh, it's very tangible and concrete. Um, and so the kinds of things that Hannah Moore did are are much less concrete, less much. Measurable, and her greatest, her her, the reputation that she earned in her own lifetime really was based on her literary Mm writings, and those writings, by and large, did not pass the test of time. So she's not considered, rightly so, her her literature wasn't um, great. Um, It was popular and 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 good, but it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, And so the thing that she was most known for didn't pass the test of time. And then the fact that she was a conservative Christian who became known by later generations as kind of a prude and a fuddy-duddy, that just sort of put the the nail on the coffin of her reputation. Um, So those are a number of reasons, I think, why she was relegated to obscurity. Although, interestingly, in the past decade or so, um, some of her poetry and her um, educational writings have started to show up in academic textbooks on the period and so forth. So there is a little bit of um, a rediscovery of her among academic writers and literary critics.
1: Can you kind of explain how she came to be active? You know, she's obviously a writer. She's a, kind of becoming a literary giant in her day. And How did she... Um, Become sort of active in these causes like the slave trade, like literacy, like uh, helping the poor. Was it was it being connected to the Clapham Sect with Wilberforce, or was there something kind of birthed in her earlier? What, how, how did that happen? Well,
2: it's it, it's really it's again it's not something that we can pinpoint exactly. Even as a teenage girl who was teaching in her older sister's school, she some of the first literature she was writing was didactic. It was designed mm-hmm. to teach. So she always had this sort of moral and didactic bent um, and, and a conservative bent. Um, but when she, um, she actually was introduced to a family of abolitionists as early as 1776, um, Charles and Lady Middleton. Um, Charles Middleton had been a, a naval captain and, and was one of the few at the time who really witnessed slavery firsthand out on the uh, in in the islands and on the seas, and um, she had a close friendship with them. So as early as 1776, Hannah Moore was opposed to slavery, but it was was another 10 years before she actually met Newton and Wilberforce, and really that's the catalyst that got things going. Mm -hmm. She met Newton in in 1787, Wilberforce the same year. They got involved with the the Middletons' efforts to lead up this abolitionist movement, and from that moment on, she was working with them, but it wasn't like it was one project at a time. They were not single-issue Christians while they were working on the abolitionist movement, more was opening up the Sunday schools, funded in mm-hmm. large part by Wilberforce and Newton and, and other members of the Clapham sect. She was writing these uh, tracts. For the poor, giving them moral lessons and lessons on frugality and and um, better living, uh, writing a novel that was geared toward the middle class of readers. So there was this multi-pronged effort to reform society from high to low. Um, you know, famously stated by Wilberforce that that two great objects that God set before him: um, the abolition of of slave trade and the reformation of manners. Um, so they were working on those things together throughout well, the the coming decades, really, it turned
1: out to be. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, she was incredibly um, prolific with with writing. I mean, just the output was incredible. And also, in terms of her activism, I mean, like you said, on a wide variety of issues, slave trade, poverty, you know, trying to teach children education. Um, It's just amazing, you know, the, the sort of full life that she led.
2: Right. And of course, this is why she is called um, by some the first Victorian, because mm. when we talk about these things that she and her friends were doing, many of us in the evangelical world today were just kind of like, yeah, that's what we do. We're trying to save the world. I mean, <laughs> I, I know, I, I think that too, but, but it wasn't until the Victorian age that there was this kind of social consciousness. Before that, I mean, the people who were People didn't question the way the world was. If you were born rich, that's because God intended it. If you were born poor, that's because God intended it. The whole idea of progress and social mobility and transforming the world to make Mm -hmm. it a better place, those are very modern ideas. And we can look at Hannah Moore and her friends and see them as some of the pioneers bringing about that idea of progress and change and Helping the poor, even helping the poor, was a new idea and a radical one, and the one that met opposition. Um, And Moore had to really combat some hostile critics in order to just simply teach the poor to read, because that was seen as a revolutionary act.
1: I wanted to ask you about that because she, as she traveled in the sort of literary circles and and high society, and I'm and I'm guessing she got a lot of. flack, opposition, A, for being a woman who was an activist in those days. I'm guessing that wasn't, you know, that wasn't popular, but also just, right. you know, kind of poking at some of the issues that kind of the higher classes wanted to ignore, such as slave trade and and, and uh, education for poor kids. Did she get a lot of, um, of opposition from those circles?
2: Oh, she got a tremendous amount of opposition. And and, you know, again, if, if you read my book, I, I mean, I'm saying the listener, if the listener, listeners read the book, I, I paint this more fully. Um, she was a strong and uh, accomplished woman, but she was also in many ways frail and weak. She had ill health mm-hmm. and, um, and and sometimes the attacks on her work and her character would put her into bed for months and at one point even years. Mm-hmm. She was in a really tough spot because she was trying to affect all this change but she was doing it as a conservative biblical Christian. So she couldn't win. So you have revolutionary radicals like Mary Wollstonecraft out there arguing for the rights of women, who is, you know, loved by the progressives and the radicals and the liberals. Moore is trying to accomplish some some similar things on a different foundation, but she's doing it as a biblical and conservative Christian. And so she gets, she's getting it from all sides. Yeah. The liberals are opposing her because of her Christianity, and the conservatives are opposing her because what she's doing seems so revolutionary. So she was just in a very interesting place doing, doing the right things for the right reasons, which is, you know, in the world that we live in, that's very rare, that many people do the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong re- things for the right reasons. Um, so she was in this sort of narrow spot, um, ethically and biblically of, of, trying to, to bring about right changes for, for right reasons.
1: Sounds like not much has changed, right? In terms <laughs> right,
2: exactly. Of, in
1: terms of Christian witness in the public square. Right. Um, I right. wanted to, I think one of the more interesting parts of her life was the, her broken engagement and that she almost got married and, you know, a couple of times he backed out and then she finally was kind of like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I right. mean, how did that kind of shape her, you know, that that sort of suffering combined with her illness, how did that kind of shape her, uh, her?
2: Well, of course, that, you know, that sad chapter in her life is just so providential because um, which, if she had married um, this man, she would have been moving up significantly in social class. Um, and so that that was one thing. But the fact that the marriage never never went he never went through with the marriage um but did settle an annuity on her which was common in those times mm-hmm. basically you know to compensate a woman financially for having you know given up her eligible years for this engagement um, it was that annuity that gave more the financial independence that allowed her to become a professional writer. Mm. Um, so this never would have happened if she had been married and then likely had children and so forth. Her life would have taken a, a different turn, um, and so this really set her free um, to pursue that calling as a writer and, and then do the the um, things she did later as a reformer and abolitionist, um, and. In terms of, of suffering, it, it just it, it was one of, of many things in her life that um, that caused her suffering. I mean, she did have to um, go away to the to the seaside as as people did in those days to kind of recover from the emotional trauma. Um, I do I do believe that it, looking back at her life now and some of the bouts that she went through, she probably um, suffered something like clinical depression at mm. times in her life. Um, And, of course, I mean, things were so different then. I I just can't imagine um, doing – traipsing through over all those hills and fields and woods on her way to those Sunday schools and that kind of get-up that she had to wear. So those kinds of things probably um, promoted ill health as well. So there – different kinds of suffering that she went through, but um, it's just her faith faith throughout her whole life all the way into her old age, she lived to be 88 years old, and her faith just grew stronger and stronger, and her love for the Lord and her desire to do His work just grew stronger. I
1: I guess the last question I want to ask is what, it's kind of a two-part question, what does it teach us, A, about the way that we should engage the world, the culture, um, you know, how should it shape what can we learn from her about the shape of our activism, number one? Mm-hmm. And number two, um, specifically for women who are, who are active, who are wanting to engage the world, what, what kind of lessons can we learn?
2: Well, in, in terms of the first question, more along with her co-laborers in the Clapham sect, I think the thing that they exemplify the most is the their willingness to work with others mm-hmm. um, with whom they have differences toward common goals. Um, so they worked with people outside their denominational and political affiliations toward the cause of abolition. Other causes they took up such as animal welfare, child labor laws, um, and other kinds of reforms, they were willing to to partner with people mm-hmm. that, you know, that that they had other considerable disagreements with, and that's how they got work done. Uh, more herself, um, despite being conservative and despite having some blind spots, even even later in life, when it came to giving um, Catholics Catholic citizens of England um, political rights, something that she opposed, that that was a very conservative, old um, time view to have. But despite that, she still she she had a, a great tolerance for. Um, For non believers, Mm -hmm. for people of different political uh, and social classes. Um, So she really, uh, as I say in the book, she really spread an ample table and invited many people to that. And her life was so much richer for it personally, but I think her efforts were so much more effective because she had such a broad reach. Um, And in terms of, of being a woman, I think that she, you know, she simply sets an example of someone who believed in biblical womanhood. she She actually, um much as i uh, you know, would like to go back and have a little talk with her about this. She opposed the very notion of rights for women. Um, she compared them to giving children rights. And mm-hmm. so that seems um, retrograde from today's point of view, but within the context of uh, of her times, That was, you know, that was a a more common view, but even within that view, she wasn't, she still was seeking for the right kinds of changes for women's education and for the development of their character and their opportunities. Um, And so even where she erred, perhaps, or where she Took positions that we would disagree with now. I think we can look at the foundations and the principles on which she stood and see where she was headed in the right direction. And um, and, the, and and I think that's that's really all that that we can do is be really try to have the eyes to see the blind spots of our time mm-hmm. because we all have cultural blind spots. Mm-hmm. And when it came to slavery, that's what she and her friends were able to see slavery through eyes that most of their fellow citizens couldn't. And um, that's what I hope we can strive to do today.
1: Karen, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. I appreciate your work and uh, your witness. And uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning that you're a research fellow with the uh, Research Institute here at the URLC. But just grateful for for all that you're doing. And thanks for for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. It was really a delight.
1: Well, that was a great interview with Karen Swallow Pryor. I encourage you to get her book, Fierce Convictions. We'll have the link up on my website, danieldarling.com. If you click on the podcast page, we'll have all the show notes there for anything that uh, we discuss in this episode. And now we're going to talk to Matt Chandler, who's pastor of Village Church in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth area. Before we do that, I want to uh, encourage you again to go to erlc.com slash summit 2015 and register for the, the, the Leadership Summit, the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation. Uh, we're having speakers like uh, Danny Akin and Tony Evans, John Perkins, Russell Moore, uh, and many others. We have a special coupon code for you, WAYHOME you'll get 15% off. So don't forget when you do register, put that in the registration. And now our interview with Matt Chandler, uh, pastor of Village Church in Texas and author of the new book, The Mingling of Souls. I guess I want to talk a couple things. One, obviously we're in a, a culture that is increasingly uh, antagonistic, I guess, sure. toward traditional marriage. And so I guess the first question is, how are you talking to future church planners and church leaders and, and equipping them to kind of articulate this in, in this culture. Yeah, I, I think
0: the, the best thing to do in an increasingly hostile or at least increasingly um, marginalizing culture is, is to help pastors, one, understand God's design for marriage. Um, and, and then really how human flourishing occurs within God's good design. Um, and, and then from there, um, you, you wanna paint the picture that the Bible paints of God's ideal for marriage. I, I agree that saying biblical marriage is, is, it's gonna jam you up in conversations with secularists because right. they're gonna go, w- which one? Right. You, you want to talk about you know David's marriages or Polygamy. Solomon's or you know who, yeah. whose marriage do you want to talk about? Because most of the marriages in the Bible are a bit train wreckish. Yes, and so to be able to to portray God's ideal uh, in light of human flourishing, in light of um, what's best for the man, what's best for the woman, and 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 then to paint that portrait as as what's beautiful, right, and good, as opposed to so. Um, One of the things I've tried to teach young guys for years now is that, and by the way, it's weird for me that I'm at that age now that I'm talking about young guys, (laughs) but um, that if we deconstruct, but you don't reconstruct, then everybody ends up homeless. And so if all we can do is point to what's wrong and what doesn't work, but you can't say, here's God's good, beautiful design for this, Mm -hmm. then, then really we don't have any message. You know, We're antagonistic with no, Real hope, and so to be able to talk about marriage in light of God's creative design, in light of human flourishing, um, and and in a way that shows the beauty of God's design, uh, I think is imperative to any arguments we have about marriage.
1: It seems, and on one hand, you know, marriage is falling in America, but it also presents the church really, I th- I think, a unique opportunity. There's no doubt to kind of you know, retell the story. Yeah. We haven't done that well in the last few years, have we? Well,
0: any? we haven't done it well and we haven't aimed young. We haven't, We. I, I think young people don't understand what marriage is, what a gift it is, what it's supposed to do, um, the sanctification that occurs within it. Uh, I think there's a, I think we live in a kind of a contractual society and not a covenantal one. Mm. Uh, and so our lives are all driven by contracts and, and contracts are an exchanging of goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people bring that, idea into marriage like it's contractual, but our vows on our wedding day certainly are not contractual, they're covenantal. Uh, In fact, people would be mortified if they went to a marriage and the vows were contractual. I will do this if you will do this. If you give me this, I will stay. Yeah. But that's not vows. Vows historically are, I give myself to you. Better or worse, I'm doing it with you. Mm-hmm. Richer or poor, I'm doing it with you. Mm-hmm. Sickness and in health, I'm doing it with you. And, and so the vows are extremely covenantal. They're, I'm not going anywhere. Come, you know, if life goes really well for us, I'm gonna enjoy that with you. And if life starts to fall apart, I'm doing that with you, and, and so because we live in a contractual culture that, that doesn't have much of an understanding of covenant, then I think it becomes imperative for pastors to help as soon as possible. Um, young people understand the beauty of covenant love and and how much safer it is and how much more beautiful it is and and even in a lot of sense, how much more romantic it is Mm. than contractual kind of ethereal feeling-based love. So as a man who walked through 18 months of high-dose chemotherapy, um, who on multiple occasions had to get enough, muster enough strength to pull myself up off the bathroom floor to throw up in the toilet again, to be able to offer my wife nothing. Uh, couldn't help with the kids, couldn't help around the house, couldn't help, just was hoping to survive the treatment in order to gain strength to serve my wife and love my wife in, in a way that, that she would enjoy being loved. Praise God that our love in that moment wasn't contractual but was covenantal. Um, that. That, you know, the Hebrews had this word, ahava, love of the will, I'm not going anywhere type of, of love. And um, for Lauren and I to be in covenant with one another that had her in that moment, when I have nothing to offer, where she's watching me waste away, where all that she loved about me in regards to my sense of humor, my pursuit of her, my romance of her heart, my care for her soul all was there but couldn't be acted upon because Mm -hmm. of my weakness and frailty uh, to have her go I love this man I'm not going anywhere I'm going to serve him even in this even when we've been told this ends in his imminent death Um, and and so like that's the picture to be celebrated not he makes me feel good he you know like, like that and and that's a good thing but if it's a primary thing then Society falls, falls apart. apart. Yeah. Society does. It's, this isn't just, I mean, the argument isn't just, you know, this man and this woman, the, the argument honestly is for human flourishing in a given society. And, and I think that's the seriousness and weight on this conversation around marriage. It's will we flourish as a society or will we self-destruct? And, and so for those who want to um, kind of go, ah, this doesn't really matter, or pretend that the argument's out there somewhere, um I, I think the point they're missing is that societies thrive or die on how we define this issue.
1: Yeah. It seems too that the church has two roles. I mean, on the one hand, because we love our neighbor, because we want society to flourish, we're speaking prophetically into the culture yeah. to say, this is the best thing. Even yeah. though you don't understand it, this is the best thing. Sure. Um, on the other hand, we're preaching the gospel and saying um, the gospel... Uh, has the answer for people's brokenness, and so how do we do both of those things at the same time?
0: Well, I, I think the gospel message is what informs and shapes, l- like all that we're doing, mm-hmm. and so it's helpful that it, it's helpful that that the Apostle Paul is going to give us in his letter to Ephesians that a man's pursuit of woman and his covenant love for a woman is. is is seen in Christ's pursuit of the church and His right. love for the church, and so the man should be taking his cue from Christ in the church, and the woman should be taking her cue from Christ's relationship with the church and the church's relationship with Christ, and and that marriage itself is a picture of God's covenantal love towards His bride, and and so marriage particularly is so ripe with um, the the themes of grace, the the themes of. God's ransoming rescuing pursuing love that that it's not hard to be prophetic and and preach the gospel clearly because what you're saying is that he, here we have this institution that's broken and difficult and uh, we, like anyone who says that marriage isn't at times difficult it hadn't been married right, exactly. um, and and so we're not we're not we're not overly romanticizing the difficulty between two sinners living together in covenant love if if anything, we're saying and acknowledging it is difficult. We need uh, a mediator between God and us. We need someone to help us and show us the way. And so what the gospel enables us to do when we talk about marriage is begin to point towards Christ, point towards his sacrifice on the cross, point towards what he has purchased. And, and then that should create in the man an ability, leaning into the Holy Spirit, trusting in the gospel to love the wife as himself without expectation of reciprocity. Now, if reciprocity is there, praise God. But God's command on the husband is to love his wife regardless of reciprocity. um, And for the wife to respect her husband regardless of reciprocity. And so in that space, you you really get to kind of come back to this is how Christ loves you. Uh, This is how Jesus pursues you. So when a man goes, man, it's really difficult to love my wife this way, she's such a difficult woman. You know, I know in my own life when when my wife and I have kind of had difficult seasons, that the Word of God will really bear its weight on me, and and you know, the Lord be like, huh, this sounds familiar. Yeah, I, like this, like she's not responding yeah. like you would want her to respond. It's kind of yet, the point. Yeah, right. And and so I I think that the gospel, along with this prophetic voice on what marriage is, the gospel just is right along, if not the tip of the spear, mm-hmm. on the conversation of Christ's. Steadfast, unwavering, ferocious
1: commitment to those who are His. We're not just saying to the culture, you know, get off my lawn, you people that are trying to change it. Gosh, no. Be like us, because this is, you know, this is how we should be. We're saying no. There's, there's the the gospel is the answer, and it points us to something better. It
0: is because you can have. It it was funny, you know, when I first started going to church. You know, I'm not a church kid, but when I first started going with um, the friend who was taking me. Um, it was interesting to me how the church would talk about lost people. It was like they didn't know any. Right. Uh, you know, we were always painted to be like barbarians, you know, like our <laughs> lives were miserable and we hated ourselves yeah. and we and and I always just kind of chuckled at that and it probably shaped me in my own pastoral ministry. Because I was a happily lost guy, yeah, um, and wasn't miserable, and wasn't contemplating suicide, and you know, <laughs> wasn't interested in doing meth or killing my parents, you know, yeah. even though I was listening to the Beastie Boys, you know, it, it was, it, it was just such an interesting thing to hear Christians talk about non-Christians like they didn't know who, right. you know, like they didn't know any, um, and so I, I say all that to say that I've met plenty of people who don't know Christ, have not submitted their lives to him, who have good marriages. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our neighbors, um, an and older couple, 60, 65, 70 years old, I mean, they'll still kind of make out in their front yard, it's disturbing. Well, now that I'm 40, it's not as disturbing, but uh, early on, I was just like, man, Rich, take that inside, brother. And um, and so I had a good marriage, in fact, I had better marriage than, than some of the Christians I knew. Um, and yet, what the Bible compels me to understand is that even in what I see in Rich and Martha and their love for one another, it's not what it could be. Um, and that, that, that really they've hit a ceiling. So maybe mentally and emotionally um, that they're together, that kind of last spiritual piece that brings us to the Hebrew word you know, for uh, intimacy, dode, a mingling of souls, that like that, they can't get there, right? They've hit a ceiling. And so um, it, it's not that someone who's outside of Christ's love can't have a good marriage or can't have a good life. I think they can, but the fullest possible life um, they, they can't get to without the gospel. So the gospel enables us to enjoy the fullness of life because it enables all pleasures to roll up another level. Um, and so sex and marriage is good as they are uh, as gifts from God. You can roll up past them to the creator and giver of such gifts so that you can enjoy more fully all of life's pleasures. Without the gospel, you don't really have that ability. You you have the pleasure of the act, the pleasure of the institution, the pleasure of the experience, but it's the gospel that rolls us past all of those things into the enjoyment of the giver
1: of those things. Matt, thanks for joining us today. No, You're appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, I wanna thank Matt Chandler for his time and uh, sitting down and talking about his Uh, excellent new book, The Mingling of Souls. I want to encourage you to get that book uh, as soon as you can at your uh, local Christian bookstore or ordering it online. We'll have a link uh, to that book, The Mingling of Souls, on my website, danieldarling.com. Also, a reminder, if you're interested in our Leadership Summit on March 26th and 27th on the Gospel and Racial Reconciliation uh, held here in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, please go to my site on the podcast page, and there will be a link to the conference page there. And don't forget the coupon code WAYHOME. You'll get a 15% discount by using that coupon code. I want to thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week when we have a, a brand new episode where we're talking about the March for Life and the Sanctity of Human Life and Sanctity of Human Life Sunday with some very special guests. Thank you for listening. You've
0: been listening to The Way Home Podcast. For show notes, more information about Dan or the ERLC, please visit danieldarling.com. This episode has been brought to you by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.
1: Thanks for listening.